0: that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one As I ought to speak.
1: Well, good morning, friends and church family. This morning we begin our five part look at Satan. And and I've been eagerly awaiting this day. I think many of you have. One of the things I think that we figured out along the way is it just sounds weird to say that you're excited about a Satan series. Uh, In some of our conversations, we've been talking about this, and I've been catching some of you. And Eventually, somebody will say, man, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Well, I'm not excited, but it's like, ah, no, no, I, I understand what you mean. And so I've been eagerly awaiting this day. I'm excited that it's, it's happening. It's starting on Father's Day because I can think of nothing greater. This is the, this is the first Father's Day that's meaningful for me in, in, in this way, uh, that my, my wife and I are pregnant. We're expecting our first boy on uh, September 29th. Thank you. And as I think about that, there's nothing more than I can that, that I can desire than more than to lead my family with a, a strong arm, a strong back, with a strong will to lead them in spiritual strength. And so I'm glad that we're starting with this topic on this day, but I invite you to get to Ephesians chapter six so that you can be uh, you can be sightseeing with me as we begin this series. I want to start today with a, a parable that was shared by David Foster Wallace in what is becoming a famous commencement address to Kenyon College. And he tells a parable of these two young fish that are swimming along. And he says, These two young fish are swimming along and they pass an older fish. And the older fish greets the two younger fish Hey, boys, how's the water? The two younger fish keep swimming. A little bit of time goes by, and eventually one of the younger fish looks at the other and says, what the heck is water? And the, the point of the parable is almost immediately evident, usually, it's that some of the most important realities, some of the most significant realities go unseen. Not because they're rare, not because they're obscure, but precisely because they are so all-pervasive. They are the the waters that we swim in. So hold that in one hand. From the time of the, the, the 9-11 attacks on through Colorado and the Boston bombing, even to this past weekend, there has been this distinct awareness as a nation that we have enemies and that those enemies are nearer than we would like. In 2002, after the 9-11 attacks, the Homeland Security Act passed, uh, uh, formed the Department of Homeland Security, and the, the slogan, the, the, the statement for that department has come to be, if you see something, say something. The entire national community has recognized and acknowledged a need for a community of, of vision that's able to see significance in the daily, mundane Ordinary things of life. So hold that in the other hand. Ephesians chapter six, verses ten through twenty, confront us with the claim that you have an enemy, that he is nearer than you would think, and that we need a community that is able to see, a community vision and I know that when we talk about the the idea of Satan the biblical figure of Satan that there's just a spectrum of people in the room maybe you you don't believe that such a figure exists you just can't buy into that and I, I understand that and there's some people in here who would check that box of doctrine they would say yeah Jesus talks about this the Bible talks about this and so I believe it but maybe when you go to speak about this with somebody you find yourself feeling a little a little squeamish maybe a little embarrassed or maybe you check this box of doctrine and you say, yeah, Jesus talks about it, the Bible talks about it, and I found it to be trustworthy, but if you were to be honest, maybe you can't find a single place this past week where that, where that dictated, where that directed any course of action in your week. And in all three of those cases, that's not just an intellectual problem, that's a, that's a, a problem of vision, that's a, a problem of sight. In the first two cases, it's not so much that, you know, we we haven't seen enough evidence for a figure like Satan. We haven't really done business with the, the, the evidence that the Bible gives, the picture of evil in this world and where that comes from. More than anything, it's just that we've come to perceive Satan as that compilation of just ridiculous images that have been given to us in literature and cartoons. And we think, man, since... Since I can't believe that that exists, I can't believe that whatever the Bible calls Satan exists. Or maybe if you are that person who's a little bit embarrassed, even though you believe, it's maybe because you have something like that picture in your mind, or maybe you think the person that you're speaking to has that picture in their mind. Or if you believe wholeheartedly, but you can't point to a place where that's affected any course of life, maybe it's a failure to perceive you're weak. Maybe it's a failure to perceive the world as you live in it and the spiritual significance there. So more than anything else, we want this series to be not just a discipleship of the mind, but a discipleship of the eye that turns us loose into our schedules, into our daily rhythms with better better eyes to see. And so we begin in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. I believe that Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 would have us to see four things. And those will be the four places that we go this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 would have us to see an enemy, a battleground. An enemy and a battleground, resources, and a body. An enemy, a battleground, resources, and a body. So first, an enemy. And I'll go light on this point this morning because this is what the entire series is about, what this entire series is intended to address. And so I just want to set it up this morning But Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 comes straight out with the assumption that you have a spiritual enemy, that what you need to be able to stand against is the schemes of the devil, that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual forces. And we'll talk about some of those terms next week, but all that is to say that you have a spiritual enemy. And like I said, I know some people in this room might not buy that at all. And I know that in the next 30, 40, 50, 60, however many minutes— I won't be able to convince you, and likely in the next few weeks, we might not be able to convince you. And to be honest with you, I don't know that that's where I would start. I would much rather start with the person and work of Jesus, who he is, who he claimed to be, how he was the climax of this Old Testament history, and how he's the only way of making sense of the early church, who who exploded onto the scene with this message of Jesus, who were fed to lions, who were put on crosses, who were put to the sword, with, with no apparent gain, with no no apparent, it didn't seem like they would would gain anything from this message other than they truly believed something about Jesus Christ. And hopefully, if you come every week and you're engaging with our church family, if you're coming to services, if you're sitting in life groups and just having conversations, hopefully we push the ball down the the field on that from week to week. And so, knowing that I might not convince some of you, what I do want to do in this time is two things. It's one, I want to remove obstacles to unbelief. Or, um, or belief with embarrassment or belief with inaction by helping us see a little better, by helping us adjust those pictures of who this figure is and what he's up to and where he is. But the second thing I want to do is give you a sense of what the stakes are. Why does, this, why does it matter whether or not we perceive that we have an enemy that is not flesh and blood, but is a spiritual enemy? And I'll give you an example. This is one of my favorite examples. Uh, I, I've shared this example in uh, in different discipleship relationships that I have, different guys that I, I meet with, and uh, we grow in the Lord together. My wife and I have told this story in our life group when we were talking about relationships for a few weeks. And uh, so, my wife and I have been married for almost five years now. We're expecting our first son, and so I haven't been married for too long. But we tell this story about uh, this time when conflict was was bubbling, you know. It's like you're in the living room, and, and there's, a, there's a look, there's, there's a word, there's a tone of voice, and you just, you know it's coming. You're trying to figure out how long is this going to last. You're trying to figure out, you know, what you need to say to make it go by quicker, but you, you know it's coming, right? And so I'm being patient. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be patient, but I made two mistakes. The first mistake is I wasn't being patient for my wife's sake, and I wasn't being patient for Christ's sake. I was being, I was being patient to try to Try to manipulate the situation, try to try to get a certain result, try to get a certain outcome. The second mistake I made is I I started patting myself on the back. James, you're doing a great job, bro. You are you are killing it. You're being so patient. You're taking the high road. You're such a good guy. And so what happened is the same thing that typically happens whenever you do the right thing with the wrong motive and a little bit of self-righteousness, where normally it might have the conflict would have bubbled slowly from a 1 to a 2 to a 3. I lingered around a 0.5 until I started to get frustrated with indignation that I didn't get the result that I thought I deserved, and I shot straight up to a 9. And listen, we're in the living room. We had been eating pizza. I walked up to my wife. I grabbed the two pieces of pizza off her plate, walked over to the trash can, opened it, and slammed him in the trash can, and then we argued. <laughs> 10, 15 minutes go by, we eventually, you know, squash the beef, and she just kind of looks like, oh, what am I supposed to eat? <coughs> Sorry, you can going have a couple of my slices. But that's what it looks like when I argue as if my enemy has, in that moment, flesh and blood and a cute face and brown hair. We'll call that the pizza path. But fortunately, fortunately, more often than not, honestly, more often than not, because I have had my eyes shaped by the Old and New Testament, because I have had my eyes shaped by the believing community, because I have had my eyes shaped by a wonderful piece of fiction by C.S. Lewis called The Screw Tape Letters. The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, I think he wants us to write. The screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, because I've had my eyes shaped by these things, more often than not, that when I see that conflict starting to, to bubble up, I become very careful because I know that there is an enemy who may not be present in the room, but his schemes are active and he hates my marriage. He hates my wife. He hates my soul. Would love nothing more than to drag us both to hell once, man, he knows that our, our marriage is a picture of a relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride. And wants that to be broken and dysfunction. That he wants us to not be best friends for the next 50, 60, 70 years. When I owe it to the king for me and my wife to be best friends. To give the world a grand picture of Christ and his bride. To be best friends for the sake of the kingdom. And so, man, when I can perceive that in a moment, I say, oh, Satan's going to try to jack this up. We need to work this out, but he's going to try to jack this up. I get careful, I look for the landmines, start to step carefully, I I try to reach her where she is, and then together we work through those things as we fight against another enemy, a spiritual enemy. Now listen, 10 years, 20 years of walking that path versus the pizza path, things look very different. Things look, our marriage looks very different. Your relationship with yourself looks very different. Your relationship with a coworker, worker a friend, whoever it is, your dealings will look incredibly different if you spend years traveling down a path as if your enemies have flesh and blood and it's not a spiritual enemy. And so I recognize that the health of my marriage has everything to do with the health of my eyes in those moments. So we need to have our eyes formed by the old and New Testament. And I feel like we are in incredibly, we're in a big deficit when it comes to this. And we have had our eyes trained by very poor pictures. The the, the 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to Satan as the lowercase g, faux temporary God of this world. And we've had our eyes, our perception, just messed up when it comes to both that world and that lowercase g, God. And so we'll address that bit. But first, I want to, I want to talk about that, that world piece, how we perceive this world. That's the second thing that Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 would have us see is, is a battleground. Down in verse 12, Paul says that we don't, we don't wrestle with, with flesh and blood. Now, I would, pay, I would pay incredible money to see two people wrestle from a distance. Wrestle each other at distance from one another. That would be a fantastic sight. I've never seen it. The idea is that, man, this is, this is close combat. The claim of the Bible is that the world that we inhabit, the type of creation that we inhabit, is the type of place where you come into close contact with the spiritual enemy, or at least the schemes of that spiritual enemy, every single day. But we don't have the, the eyes to see that all the time. One, we have to deal with the, the effect of some medieval literature that has convinced us that, that Satan's bunkered down underground somewhere. And two, maybe more than that, we've had our, our eyes, even as believers, shaped by the Enlightenment. And so to be, to be almost sinfully Uh, Brief on this point a few hundred years ago one guy says I think therefore I am another guy looks through a telescope and from those points on there's a a scientific revolution and a a philosophical revolution that start to unfold and that scientific revolution uh, starts to, to, to change the way the depth with which we observe the world around us the pieces of the world around us. And that philosophical revolution starts to change the way that we interpret the world around us. Namely, the big one is it revived this idea that we live in a two-story universe, right? That we're on the first floor and that's kind of where things just happen naturally, where things run on their own steam, that God lives on the, on the second floor and he probably built the first floor, but he kind of does his own thing. But every once in a while he'll come down, man, those are the miracles, that's the, that's the supernatural stuff. And that's incredibly different than the picture that the Bible paints of what type of place God's creation is. Psalm 139 says that God knits children together in the womb. Now, don't fall into the trap of thinking because these, these, the writers of these psalms are ancient that they're dumb. That because we have telescopes and microscopes that we are so much smarter than... Them. They, they knew how two people came together to, to make a baby. They knew that there were ingredients that needed to be added. They weren't dumb. But man, what the writer of that psalm is saying is that, that God is also involved in that, that parents partner with God in that act of, of creation. Or even the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 6 where he says that God feeds the birds of the air and that God clothes the grass with the lilies of the field. Now, if God clothes the grass of the field with lilies, then are blooming flowers a natural thing? Or supernatural thing. And you see how the game has been rigged. Even with our language, when we try to talk about biblical realities, we, we talk as if there is this two-story universe where some things happen on their own steam. God upholds the universe with the word of his power. He is intimately involved with his creation. And if we could just, if we could just turn on the light, we would see God at work knitting babies, feeding birds, Clothing the grass. Remember, they're an agricultural society. They know how seed works. But we would see those things if we could just turn on the light in this one-story universe. That's to say every day is spiritual. Every day is spiritual. And that means that this is hostile territory. That if you could flip that light on, you'd see God doing those things, but you would also see Satan, you would see his angels, and you would see a war. Abraham Kuyper was a significant uh, theologian in the Christian tradition and the, the prime minister of the Netherlands in the beginning of the 20th century. And he put it this way. He said, Were it possible to pull back the curtain that hides the world of spirits from our eyes, I am convinced that a war so intense, so volcanic, so sweeping in its reach would present itself to our mind's eye, that it would make the bitterest war on earth seem like child's play by comparison. So that that's, the, that's the collision of forces that matters, and that here in our conflicts we experience only the aftershocks of that great collision. He's saying every day is spiritual, and that means that this is hostile territory. And that doesn't mean that we see fantastic, incredible things every day. I mean, you think about when, when, when 9-11 happened, and from that time, these, these occurrences that have happened, those don't happen every day, right? Those happen in certain places, and because we live in a digital age, we can see those things from a distance, but if there were no computers, there were no smartphones, there were no TVs, we would just have to rely on people's testimony, right? That's the the, the portrait that the Bible paints. That Those incredible things don't happen all the time, we rely on testimonies to hear about times when that's happened. But more than anything, that should just train our minds, train our eyes to see combative significance in everyday things. And isn't that the effect that, that something like 9-11 had on us? There was a day, 16, 17 years ago, when you could have walked down the street and there could have been backpacks strewn about and you wouldn't have noticed. Somebody at the end of your day could ask you, how many backpacks did you see today? And say, oh, I don't know, probably saw something. But man, once we realized that we had an enemy and that that enemy was nearer than we thought, all of a sudden, you couldn't help but notice an abandoned backpack. Who put that there? Did anybody see who put that there? How long has that been there? Everybody stand back. You call somebody. Did anybody see who put that there? All of a sudden, something ordinary, something mundane becomes loaded with combative significance. Remember there was a time when there's nothing more nebulous than envelopes. But remember a time when we would, we would open our mail and we would, kinda, we would look and and we would be real ginger, and we'd, we'd look to see if it was tampered with. Was there a, a residue there? Because that's what the realization that you have an enemy does. It makes, you, it makes you more careful. It makes you live more intentionally. Can I give you an example of some place that for certain, I can't tell you always what Satan's up to. He's one guy. He's only in one place. He's not God. He's not everywhere. His schemes are active. But can I tell you one place where I know with absolute certainty that something like this takes place every week? Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story of a guy who's going out throwing out seed, right? And he tells a story, and the guy throws out the seed, and it falls on different kinds of soil. And three of the soils, nothing good happens. But on the last soil, man, it takes root, it grows up, it sprouts, it flourishes. And Jesus tells this parable, and he says that the guy who's sowing seed is sowing the word. He's preaching this word of the kingdom and it falls on different soils and on on one of them It takes root and the others it doesn't but on one of those other three That's the place where the seed fell on the path Man the the birds came and snatched it away before it could take root And jesus when he interprets the parable says that that's the person who hears this word of the kingdom But man before it can sink in before it it hits his heart before it takes root The enemy comes and snatches it away That means that every single week when we are here trying to to sow this seed of the gospel, trying to sow this seed of the word, that there is an enemy at work trying to snatch that seed. Now, what do you expect that to look like? Guy in red tights comes through that door? Bag over his shoulder? Of course not. He goes around and what? Like literally grabs seed from the ground? Of course not. What does that look like? Man, maybe that looks more like, I don't know, the Bible talks a lot about how the enemy tries to lean on your appetites. Maybe that looks like something as as nebulous. Remember the envelopes? Remember the backpacks? Maybe it looks like something as ordinary as, man, I wonder what time we're going to get out of here for lunch. I don't know how long this kid's going to go. If we get to that place by this time, we should be able to beat the line. We ended up at that place last week. I can't go to that place again. Or maybe it looks like jargon. Maybe it looks like, because the enemy never uses reason. One of my favorite lines from the Screw Tape Letters is that the, that reason, he, a, the premise of the book is a senior demon trying to teach a junior demon how to tempt. And he says, never use reason. Reason always moves the battle onto the enemy's ground. Right? And so maybe it's something like jargon. Maybe it's just sitting there saying, oh, this is so regressive. I can't believe that people believe this. There's a total lack of progress. This is totally archaic. I, I really don't believe how anybody could believe this. Never mind whether or not it's true or not. It's just, oh, it's just it's, it's so regressive. Or maybe it wears more religious clothing. Music wasn't that good this morning. Which, if you're saying that about this morning, you could well, you could stay. Um, you probably you need this sermon than anybody else. Yeah, I, I, music wasn't that good this morning. I don't know why they play those songs. I don't know why I don't play those songs. Why is this kid preaching? Where's Randy? How many vacation days do we give him? (laughs) Why isn't that kid's shirt tucked in? And listen... this is one of those places where just the passing thought, a relationship, something that is, is on its own, maybe totally tame, can be loaded with combative significance. And man, you have to play traffic cop to your thoughts to say, does that come from the Lord or is that coming from somewhere else? Because meanwhile, while you're entertaining that thought, the enemy is snatching the seed away from you so it doesn't sink into your heart and produce fruit. And so, man, we need to see that combative significance in the everyday and the ordinary. And when we see that we have an enemy and we see that this is hostile territory, that this is the battleground, man, it, it, it teaches us to reach for different resources. That's the third thing that this passage shows us is a, is a list of resources, that if we understand it's a spiritual enemy and that he is near, that we reach for things like truth and righteousness and word and prayer, that we reach for salvation and gospel readiness. What do you reach for when you, when you encounter dysfunction, violence, strife, injustice? If you believe that a particular person, if you believe that a friend, a family member, in a moment is the enemy, you will reach for, I don't know, you'll reach for manipulation, shouting, the cold shoulder, bitterness. But man, if you, if you see in that moment that you have a spiritual enemy, that Satan's the enemy and that he's trying to introduce dysfunction and steal joy from that relationship, man, you'll put on, you'll put on righteousness and faith and salvation. If in a moment you perceive that your boss or that a coworker is the enemy, you'll put on gossip, bitterness. But if in that moment we perceive that Satan is an enemy that is active, that his schemes are at work against you, so that you would have your kingdom significance robbed from your job, that he would break down a bridge that could be used for the gospel, you'll put on faith and gospel readiness. If you look out into a world and you, you perceive a particular figure or particular systems as the enemy, then you'll try to get your guy in office and you will snarl at people on the other side of the aisle while you do it. Now listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with trying to get your guy in office. There's nothing wrong with protests, with marches, with viral videos. There's nothing wrong with philanthropy. But honestly, I think that we've gotten to the point where in a digital age where we can see more of the world than ever before, we can see more of the, the brokenness in the world than ever before, I think that we start to lose hope in some of those things. We wonder that if any of those things actually change anything, and our, and our memory becomes so short as we hop from one cause to the next, we just think, oh, did Did we catch Coney? did they bring back our girls? Are are we any closer to to curing ALS? I don't don't even know how that panned out. And more and more, we start to lose hope in these things. But man, if you perceive that there is one overarching fundamental enemy of God's good but broken creation, you will get on your knees and you'll pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done in your own heart, in your own life. You'll pray that God will lead you away from temptation and deliver you from the evil one. How neglected the second half of the Lord's prayer is. The type of prayer that Christ taught us to pray every single day. Give us this day our daily bread. Ends with, man, God, don't let, don't let me fold into temptation. Don't let me be at work. Don't let me be an agent for the enemy's schemes. Deliver me from the evil one. Lead me away from temptation. And prayer is probably one of the single greatest indicators of who we actually think our enemy is. One preacher put it this way. He said that, that you don't even know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. That, that prayer has been given to us as a, as a walkie-talkie for wartime, but we often use it as a domestic intercom so that we can... Call the maid to get another log, for the fire to call the maid to get another pillow, for the couch to call the maid to get something sweet. I think that's one of the reasons why often we don't pray, because if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're, we're, just, we're as comfortable as we would want to be. But man, if you understand that we have an enemy and that he is near, that this is hostile territory, you're, you'll get on your knees and say, God, we need help. God, we need help. We need reinforcements. When you sin, you'll fall to your knees and say, God, I'm, I'm hit. I need you to heal me. We need a medic. God, we can't see anything over here. We need your eyes. God, people are, people are defecting. We need you to rally the troops. They're losing heart. That's what prayer is for. If you see something, you'll say something in prayer. But that's not the only place. The fourth thing that this passage, the fourth thing that, that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 would have us see is a body. That you won't do this on your own. The assumption of this passage, just like everywhere else in the Bible, is that this happens in a group. That this happens with the people. If you don't see it in the Bible, it's because it's the water that the Bible swims in. Paul says at the very beginning in, in verse, verse 11 and, and 12, man, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against a spiritual enemy. The very end, he calls for the group to be alert, to watch one another, to, to pray for one another. One of the mottos of the, if you see something, say something campaign is it takes a community to protect a community. Don't you love when the Department of Homeland Security reads Ephesians 6? it, It takes a community to protect a community. Why? Because you cannot see everything on your own. You can see nothing. And man, by God's grace, you can see something, but you can't see everything. And so we need a a community of vision that keeps an eye on one another. And one person's negligence or absence puts the whole group at risk. And man, some of us need to go to our life group and and grab a a person or two, grab a, a man or two, grab a woman or two, and give them permission to say, look, keep an eye on me. And if you see something, say something. If you see me wrestling with the spirit of greed or lust, say something. If you see me giving into a a spirit of self-loathing or self-loving, say something. If you see me falling asleep at my post, say something. If you see me sprinting through the minefield, say something. If you see me unarmed against a spiritual enemy, say something. Don't let my enemy pull me out the trench. And just because you fight for God's side does not mean that you can't spend a long, long season in the enemy's prison camp. And my my fear, my fear is that many of us are being dragged off to a prison of bitterness, a prison of insecurity, a prison of self-focus, a prison of addiction, and we don't even have the eyes to see that we're headed there. A prison of sleepiness and ineffectiveness for the gospel. And don't even see it. And maybe what's worse than that, have not immersed ourselves in a community of people who can see it for us. And maybe what's worse than that, have not given a single person freedom to say something if they do see it. And you don't go into war alone. You don't go into battle alone. Part of what we mean around here when we say that life is better connected is that life is protected connected so Paul goes on and he says, man, you, you pray for one another. Pray for one another. Cover each other in prayer. Paul asks for himself, verse 19 and 20. He says, man, pray for me. I got pre- to preach this gospel the way I ought to, that there's a way I ought to preach. And if I'm going to do it, I need you to cover me. I sent that text message earlier this week. I texted a group of five people. I said, look, I have this sermon God's put in my bones and I need you guys to cover me in prayer. So I preach it as I ought. And man, if Paul needs it, He's like the super saint, right? Of course we need it. That's what we're supposed to be for one another, a community that covers one another so we can come to one another and tell each other, man, look, I'm going to try, try to lead my family in a new direction, cover me. I'm, I'm going to try to step out in this place of obedience, cover me. I'm, I'm going I'm to try to love my life group even though a couple of them are just being knuckleheaded, cover me. I'm going to try to be honest in this area this week. Cover me, man. We need to include one another. That's the assumption of the passage. You don't go into battle alone. Who are you covering? The biggest thing you want to know. What blew my mind looking at this passage, and I still don't have this completely worked out. But you look at you look at the armor of God passages there, thirteen through seventeen ish, and in the margin of your Bible next to those passages, just write Isaiah fifty nine seventeen. Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen. When you go to Isaiah 59, 17, Isaiah depicts God going into battle and God's wearing the helmet of salvation and God's wearing the, the breastplate of righteousness. And so when Paul's talking about putting on the armor of God, I, by that, the armor of God, I think he's not just talking about the armor that God gives, but I think he's talking about the armor that God wears. And then he tells the group to put on the armor. He tells the one group to put on the one armor. And reading other parts of Paul, I can almost see him doing the math where he's seeing, okay, there's this this invisible God, this God that if we could turn on the lights, pull back the curtain, we would see. There's this God who wears this armor. And, And Jesus Christ is the image of that invisible God, Colossians 1. And that as many as have been baptized into Christ have, have put on Christ, Galatians 3. That we are the body of Christ. You can go back to Ephesians 4. You could look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. So he says, Man, if, if God wears this armor and Jesus is his image, and, and we are the body of that Christ who is the image of that God who wears that armor then part of what it means, part of what, what is necessary to put on that armor means deep union with Jesus Christ and meaningful participation with his people. Not, not sitting around the body of Christ. I don't want my thumb sitting next to my body. Like I, I, I want the ligaments to be connected the way Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. I want it to be joined together. And my fear is that some of us are going to the battle already dismembered. The armor of God is body armor, and if you're not in the body, you are not in the armor. And so the invitation is, man, to, to crawl up into the armor with God, through Christ, with his people. And that, one, that, that makes us fruitful for the battle. It makes us fruitful for standing against our spiritual enemy. That's what it means at the very beginning of this passage when it says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and the strength of his armor and the strength of his salvation and his righteousness and his readiness. But man, that also helps us to know the, the shape of our, our mission as Christians. Because when Jesus Christ came, that image of the invisible God, and put on that armor, he headed to the cross. Instead of pulling out that, that sword and waging war against each of us who was opposed to his plans and opposed to his agenda, because he would have had to level each one of us, he puts on that armor and he goes to the cross so that he can absorb every blow of the world, that he can absorb all of the evil, all of the brokenness, all of the hatred, all of the injustice, all of the violence on the world's behalf, so that he can pull out that sword and just prick hearts with it, to, 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 to take it and melt stony hearts so that you would see the love and the grace and the mercy of God, so that we would see the invitation because of his sacrifice to crawl up into the armor through Christ with God's people. And that helps us to know how to be on mission, that we put on that armor, we crawl up in there with Jesus, and we put on that armor, and we go out and for the sake of the world absorb the blows of the world while we try to use God's word to, to, to prick hearts and invite people to experience that kind of union with Jesus Christ. The, the type of relationship that the New Testament calls both us being in Christ and Christ being in us. So that we can go out into a broken world with a lowercase g faux temporary God of this world and be able to say, man, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us with this. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would have eyes. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that there would be an awakening, that that dead things would come to life, and that we would go into our weeks, that we would go into our lives, go into our relationships with new eyes that that are able to see the war that's going on all around us in the ordinary and in the mundane. I pray that you would bless your people for that task, for the sake of your cause, and for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of the world around us for our own joy and for your glory. I pray that we wouldn't be so proud. I pray that we would give ourselves to one another and that we would be watchful over one another, that we would give each other freedom to see one another and to say anything that needs to be said in this battle. I pray that we would watch each other's six We love you, we thank you for sending your Son, your Son who puts on the armor, absorbs the blows on our behalf, and invites us to join him. I pray that we would experience a deep union, a deep fellowship, a deep intimacy with him, and that we would do it together. Help us to stand in the strength of his might. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.